Chapter Thirteen of the Story of Eclipses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of Eclipses by George Chambers. Chapter Thirteen. Eclipses of the Sun during the Nineteenth Century. Observations of total solar eclipses during the nineteenth century have been, for the most part, carried on under circumstances so essentially different from everything that has gone before, that not only does a new chapter seem desirable, but also new form of treatment. Up to the beginning of the eighteenth century the observations, even the best of them, may be said to have been made and recorded with but few exceptions by unskilled observers with no clear ideas as to what they should look for and what they might expect to see. Things improved a little during the eighteenth century in the observations by Haley, McLaren, Bradley, Don Antonio Ulloa, Sir W. Herschel, and others in particular rose to a much higher standard than any which had preceded them. However, it has only been during the nineteenth century, and especially during the latter half of it, that the total eclipses of the sun have been observed under circumstances calculated to extract from them large and solid extensions of scientific knowledge. Inasmuch as it has been deemed convenient to sort out and classify our knowledge under particular heads in previous chapters, I shall in this chapter speak only of the leading facts of each eclipse in such an outline form as will avoid as far as possible unnecessary repetition. In 1806 a total eclipse of the sun occurred visible in North America. Observations made in the United States have been handed down to us. Don Joaquin Ferrer, a Spanish astronomer, observed the eclipse at Kinderhook in the state of New York. The totality lasted more than four and a half minutes, a somewhat unusual length of time. One or two planets and a few first magnitude stars were seen. During the totality there was a slight fall of dew. On November 19, 1816, there occurred the first total eclipse of the sun in the 19th century, the central line of which passed over Europe. There was only one known observation of the total phase, and this was by Hagen at Kolm in Bohemia, but he appears to have seen only the beginning of the totality and not the whole of it. A partial eclipse of the sun visible as such in England, but which was annular in the Shetland Islands, took place on September 7, 1820. The only reason why this is worth mention is for its political associations. The trial of Queen Caroline was going on in the House of Lords, and the House suspended its sitting for a short time for the sake of the eclipse. On May 15, 1836, there occurred an annular eclipse of the sun, which, though it was nowhere total, may be looked upon as the first of the modern eclipses, the observations of which have taken such a great development during recent years. The annularity of this eclipse was observed in the north of England and in the south of Scotland and it was at Jedburgh in Roxburghshire that Mr. Francis Bailey observed that feature of eclipses of the sun now universally known as Bailey's beads. Some indications of the red flames were also obtained at places where the eclipse was annular. Probably it was the recognition of Bailey's beads as a regular concomitant of eclipses of the sun which helped to pave the way for the extensive preparations made in France, Italy, Austria, and Russia for observing the total eclipse of July 8, 1842. Many of the most eminent astronomers of Europe repaired to different stations on the central line in order to see the phenomenon. Amongst these may be named Arago, Valls, Airy, Carlini, Santini, and O. Struve. 
The eclipse was witnessed under favorable circumstances at all the various stations on the central line across Europe, from Perpignan in France in the west to Lipetsk in Russia in the east. Arago wrote such an exceedingly graphic account of this eclipse from what may be termed the standpoint of the general public, that I will quote it at some length, because, with an alteration of date, it might be rewritten and applied to every total eclipse visible in much populated tracts of country. At Perpignan, persons who were seriously unwell alone remained within doors. As soon as day began to break, the population covered the terraces and battlements of the town, as well as all the little eminences in the neighborhood, in hopes of obtaining a view of the sun as he ascended above the horizon. At the citadel we had under our eyes, besides numerous groups of citizens established on the slopes, a body of soldiers about to be reviewed. The hour of the commencement of the eclipse drew nigh. More than twenty thousand persons with smoke glasses in their hands were examining the radiant globe projected upon an azure sky. Although armed with our powerful telescopes, we had hardly begun to discern the small notch on the western limb of the sun, when an immense exclamation, formed by the blending together of twenty thousand different voices, announced to us that we had anticipated by only a few seconds the observation made with the unaided eye by twenty thousand astronomers equipped for the occasion, whose first essay this was. A lively curiosity, a spirit of emulation, the desire of not being outdone, had the privilege of giving to the natural vision an unusual power of penetration. During the interval that elapsed between this moment and the almost total disappearance of the sun, we remarked nothing worthy of relation in the countenances of so many spectators. But when the sun, reduced to a very narrow filament, began to throw upon the horizon only a very feeble light, a sort of uneasiness seized upon all. Every person felt a desire to communicate his impressions to those around him. Hence arose a deep murmur, resembling that sent forth by the distant ocean after a tempest. The hum of voices increased in intensity as the solar crescent grew more slender. At length the crescent disappeared. Darkness suddenly succeeded light, and an absolute silence marked this phase of the eclipse, with as great precision as did the pendulum of our astronomical clock. The phenomenon in its magnificence had triumphed over the petulance of youth, over the levity which certain persons assume as a sign of superiority, over the noisy indifference of which soldiers usually make profession. A profound stillness also reigned in the air. The birds had ceased to sing. After an interval of solemn expectation which lasted about two minutes, transports of joy, shouts of enthusiastic applause, saluted with the same accord, the same spontaneous feeling, the first reappearance of the rays of the sun to a condition of melancholy produced by sentiments of an indefinable nature there succeeded a lively and intelligible feeling of satisfaction which no one sought to escape from or moderate the impulses of to the majority of the public the phenomenon had arrived at its term the other phases of the eclipse had few attentive spectators beyond the persons devoted especially to astronomical pursuits the total eclipse of July 28, 1851 may be said to have been the first which was the subject of an eclipse expedition, a phrase which of late years has become exceedingly familiar. The total phase was visible in Norway and Sweden, and great numbers of astronomers from all parts of Europe flocked to those countries. Among those who went from England were Sir G. B. Airy, the Astronomer Royal, then Mr. Airy, Mr. J. R. Hind, and Mr. Lassell. 
the red flames were very much in evidence and the fact that they belonged to the sun and not to the moon was clearly established hind mentions that the aspect of nature during the total eclipse was grand beyond description this feature is dwelt upon with more than usual emphasis in many of the published accounts i have never seen it suggested that the mountainous character of the country may have had something to do with it but that idea would seem not improbable in the year eighteen fifty eight two central eclipses of the sun occurred both presenting some features of interest that of march fifteenth was annular the central line passing across england from lyme regis in dorsetshire to the wash traversing portions of somersetshire wiltshire berkshire oxfordshire northamptonshire lincolnshire and norfolk the weather generally was unfavorable and the annular phase was only observed at a few places but important meteorological observations were made and yielded results as regards the diminution of temperature which were very definite all over the country rooks and pigeons were seen returning home during the greatest obscuration starlings in many places took flight at oxford a thrush commenced its evening song at ventnor a fish in an aquarium ordinarily visible in the evening only was in full activity about the time of greatest gloom and generally it was noted that the birds stopped singing and flew low from bush to bush the darkness though nowhere intense was everywhere very appreciable and decided the second central eclipse of eighteen fifty eight took place on september seventh and was observed in peru by lieutenant gillis of the u s navy the totality only lasted one minute and the general features of a total eclipse do not appear to have been very conspicuously visible gillis remarks two citizens of almost stood within a few feet of me watching in silence and with ancients countenances the rapid and fearful decrease of light they were wholly ignorant that any sudden effect would follow the total obscuration of the sun at that instant one exclaimed in terror la gloria and both i believe fell to their knees filled with awe they appreciated the resemblance of the corona to the halos with which the old masters have encircled their ideals of the heads of our saviour and the madonna and devoutly regarded this as a manifestation of the divine presence the year eighteen sixty saw the departure from england of the first great ship expedition to see an eclipse one was due to happen on july eighteenth and a large party went out from england to spain in the h m s himalaya mr de la rue took a very well equipped photographic detachment and his photographs were eminently successful this eclipse settled forever the doubt as to whether the red flames belonged to the sun or the moon and in favor of the former view the years eighteen sixty eight eighteen sixty nine and eighteen seventy were each marked by total eclipses which were observed to a greater or less extent in the first named year the eclipse occurred on august eighteenth the central line passing across india the weather was not everywhere favorable but several expeditions were dispatched to the east indies the spectroscope was largely brought into play with the immediate result of showing that the corona was to be deemed a sort of atmosphere of the sun not self-luminous but shining by reflected light the eclipse of eighteen sixty nine was observed by several well-equipped parties in the united states and a very complete series of excellent photographs was obtained to view the eclipse of december twenty second eighteen seventy several expeditions were dispatched the central line passing over some very accessible places in spain sicily and north africa the english observers went chiefly in h m s urgent though some of them travelled overland to sicily the expenses both of the sea and land parties were to a large extent defrayed by her majesty's government 
It deserves to be noted that so great was the anxiety of the French astronomer Janssen to see this eclipse that he determined to try and escape in a balloon from Paris, then besieged by the Germans, and succeeded, carrying his instruments with him. The weather seriously interfered with the work of all the observers who went out to see this eclipse, which was the more to be regretted because the preparations had been on a very extensive and costly scale. The chief result was that it was ascertained that the red flames, henceforward generally called prominences, are composed of hydrogen gas in an incandescent state. The year 1871 saw on December 12th another Indian eclipse, noteworthy for the numerous and excellent photographs which were obtained of the corona, of the rifts in it, and of the general details which were well recorded on the plates. There was an eclipse visible in South Africa on April 16, 1874. Some useful naked eye views were obtained and recorded, but as no photographic work was done, this eclipse cannot be said to come into line with those which preceded or followed it. In the following year, that is to say on April 6, 1875, there was a total eclipse of the sun visible in the Far East, especially Siam. But the distance from England, coupled with the very generally unfavorable weather, prevented this from being anything more than a second-class total eclipse, so to speak, although extensive preparations had been made and the sum of a thousand pounds had been granted by the British government towards the expenses. A certain number of photographs were obtained, but none of any very great value. Perhaps of the next eclipse which we have to consider, it may be said that the circumstances were more varied than those of any other during the second half of the 19th century. The eclipse in question occurred on July 29, 1878. Several favorable circumstances concurred to make it a notable event. In the first place, the central line passed entirely across the United States, in other words, across a long stretch of inhabited and civilized territory accessible from both sides to a nation well provided with the requisite scientific skill and material resources of every kind. But there was another special and rare facility available. The central line crossed the chain of the Rocky Mountains, an elevated locality, which an American writer speaks of as overhung by skies of such limpid clearness that on several evenings Jupiter's satellites were seen with the naked eye. On the summit of a certain peak, known as Pike's Peak, a party of skilled observers headed by Professor Langley observed the wonderful developments of the corona mentioned on a previous page. The fact that such a display came under the eyes of man was no doubt mainly due to the superbly clear atmosphere through which the observations were made. That this is not a mere supposition may be inferred from the fact that at the lower elevation of only 8,000 feet, instead of 14,000 feet, the coronal streamers were seen by Professor Newcomb's party far less extended than Langley saw them. Perhaps the best proof of the importance of a diaphanous sky is to be found in the fact that on the summit of Pike's Peak the corona remained visible for fully four minutes after the total phase had come to an end. A comparison of the description shows that even at the elevation of 10,200 feet the observers placed there, whilst they were better off than those at 8,000 feet, assuredly did not see so much or so well as those at 14,000 feet. There occurred a total eclipse on July 11, 1880 visible in California, but as the totality lasted only 32 seconds and the sun's elevation was only 11 degrees, not much was got out of this eclipse notwithstanding that it was observed in a cloudless sky at a station 6,000 feet above the sea. The eclipse of May 17, 1882, yielded several interesting and important features, although the totality was short, only about one and a quarter minutes. 
Here again favorable local circumstances helped astronomers in more ways than one. It was in Egypt that the eclipse was visible, and Egypt is a country which it is exceedingly easy for travelers to reach, and it is also noted for its clear skies. These were doubtless two of the reasons which combined to inspire the elaborate preparations which were made for photographic and spectroscopic observations. The former resulted in a very unprecedented success. One of Dr. Schuster's photographs of the totality showed not only the expected corona, but an unexpected comet. Though on more than one previous occasion in history, the darkness, which is a special accompaniment of a total eclipse, had caused a comet to be seen, yet the 1882 eclipse was the first at which a comet had thrust itself upon the notice of astronomers by means of a photographic plate. It will be remembered that the political circumstances of Egypt in 1882 were of a somewhat strained character and probably this contributed to the development of an unusual amount of astronomical competition in connection with this eclipse. Not only did the Egyptian government grant special facilities, but strong parties went out representing England, France, and Italy, although not perhaps in set terms at the direct instigation of their respective governments. The next eclipse, that of May 6, 1883, had some dramatic features about it. To begin with, its duration was unusually long, nearly five and a half minutes, and Mrs. Todd, in her genial American style, remarks, after the frequent manner of its kind, the path lay where it would be least useful, across the wind-swept wastes of the Pacific. But fortunately one of a small group of coral islands lay quite in its line, and nothing daunted, the brave scientific men set their faces towards this friendly cluster, in cheerful faith that they could locate there. Directed to take up their abode somewhere on a diminutive island about which nothing could be ascertained beforehand save the bare fact of its existence at a known spot in mid-ocean, the American observers were absent from the United States more than three months most of which time was spent in traveling 15,000 miles in all, with ten full weeks at sea. Their tiny foothold in the Pacific was Caroline Island, a coral atoll on the outskirts of the Marquesas group. In spite of the unattractive, not to say forbidding, character of the place to which they would have to go, parties of astronomers went out from England, France, Austria, and Italy, and although rain fell on the morning of the day, the sky became quite clear by the time of totality, and the observations were completely successful. One of the pictures of the corona obtained by Trouvelot, an observer of French descent but belonging to the American party, has been often reproduced in books, and exhibited the corona in a striking form. How few were the attractions of Caroline Island as an eclipse station may be judged from the fact that the inhabitants consisted of only four native men, one woman, and two children who lived in three houses and two sheds. On September 8, 1885, there occurred a total eclipse, which was seen as such in New Zealand, but the observations were few and with one exception unimportant and uninteresting. A certain Mr. Graydon, however, made a sketch which showed at one point a complete break in the corona, so that from the very edge of the moon outwards into space there was a long and narrow black space showing nothing but a vacuity. If this was really the condition of things, such a break in the corona is apparently quite unprecedented. In 1886, on August 29th, there occurred a total eclipse visible in the West Indies, which yielded various important results. It was unfortunate that for the greater part of its length the zone of totality covered ocean and not land, the only land being the island of Grenada and some adjacent parts of South America. 
The resulting restriction as regards choice of observing stations was the more to be regretted because the duration of the totality was so unusually long, and therefore favorable, being more than six and a half minutes in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Parties of English, American, and Italian astronomers assembled, however, at Grenada, and though the weather was not the best possible, some interesting photographs were obtained which exhibited an unusual development of hydrogen protuberances. The central line in this eclipse not only stretched right across the Atlantic, but entered Africa on the west coast where a missionary saw the eclipse as a mere spectator, and afterwards expressed his regret that no astronomers were within reach with instruments to record the remarkable corona, which was displayed to his gaze. Though the unusual opportunities which so far as the sun and the moon were concerned were afforded by the eclipse of 1886 were lost, Astronomers looked out hopefully for August 19, 1887, when another eclipse was due to happen, which, weather permitting, would be observable over a very long stretch of land, from Berlin through Russia and Siberia to Japan. Unusually extensive preparations were made in Russia at one end and in Japan at the other, but clouds prevailed very generally, and the pictures of the corona which were obtained fell far short in number and quality from what had been hoped for having regard to the number and importance of the stations chosen, and of the astronomers who made their preparations thereat. An enthusiastic Russian, in the hope of emancipating himself from the risks of terrestrial weather at the Earth's surface, went up in a balloon to an elevation of more than two miles. His enthusiasm was so far rewarded that he had a very clear view of a magnificent corona. But, as owing to some mischance, the balloon rose, conveying only the astronomer and leaving behind his assistant who was to have managed the balloon. All his time was engrossed by the management of the balloon, and he could do very little in the way of purely astronomical work. The year 1889 afforded two total eclipses of the sun for which the usual preparations were made. The first occurred on New Year's Day, and the path of the shadow crossed the North American continent from California to Manitoba. The weather was nearly everywhere very favorable, and an enormous number of observers and instruments were assembled along the central line. The consequence was that a very large number of photographs were obtained. It may be said generally of this eclipse that as it coincided with a sunspot minimum, it left us in a position to learn very distinctly what are the characteristic features of a solar corona at a period which is one of rest and repose on the sun, at least so far as regards visible sunspots. The second eclipse of 1889 occurred on December 22nd, and should have been visible off the northern coast of South America and on the west coast of Africa. Attempts were made to utilize the South American chances by English and American parties, whilst a small expedition comprising astronomers of both nations went to Cape Lido in West Africa. The African efforts failed entirely owing to clouds, but the South American parties at Cayenne were successful. One very deplorable result, however, arising out of the expedition to Cayenne, was the illness and subsequent death of the Rev. S. J. Perry, S. J., who was struck down by malaria and died at sea on the return journey. None who knew Mr. Perry personally could fail to realize what a loss he was both to astronomy generally and to his own circle of friends particularly. On April 16, 1893, there happened a total eclipse of the sun, which was successfully watched by a large number of skilled observers throughout its entire length. Indeed, it is believed that only one party was unsuccessful. The line of totality started on the coast of Chile, passed over the highlands of that country across the borders of Argentina and Paraguay, 
and over the vast plains and forests of central Brazil, emerging at about noon of local time at a short distance to the northwest of Ceara on the North Atlantic seaboard. Crossing the Atlantic nearly at its narrowest part, it struck the coast of Africa north of the river Gambia, and finally disappeared somewhere in the Sahara. The South American observations were the most extensive and successful, the latter fact being due to the circumstance that the sky at many of the principal stations was preeminently favorable, owing to the clearness and dryness of the atmosphere. On September 29, 1894, there was a total eclipse of the sun, but as its duration was brief and the zone of totality lay chiefly over the Indian Ocean, practically nothing came of it. Things seemed, however, much more promising for the total eclipse of August 9, 1896, and a very large number of observers went out to the north of Norway, hoping to catch the shadow at its European end, whilst a yacht party went to Nova Zembla in the Arctic Ocean, and a few observers traveled as far as Japan. So far as the very large number of would-be observers who went from England to Norway were concerned, the eclipse was a profound disappointment for owing to bad weather practically nothing was seen in Norway except on the west coast near Bodo, where the weather was beautifully fine but where no adequate preparations had been made because nobody believed that the coast would be free from fog. Exceptionally fine weather prevailed at Nova Zembla, and the small but select party who were kindly taken there by the late Sir G. B. Powell, M.P., and his yacht, were very fortunate, and an excellent series of photographs was secured. One important result obtained at Nova Zembla was a full confirmation by Mr. Shackleton of Professor Young's discovery in 1870 of the reversing layer, a discovery which was long and vehemently disputed by Sir Norman Lockyer. Fairly successful observations were made of this eclipse in Siberia and Japan. The last total eclipse of the sun which has to be noticed as an accomplished fact was the Indian eclipse of January 22, 1898 which was very successfully seen by large numbers of people who went to India from all parts of the world. As usual in all total eclipses of the sun nowadays, the photographers were very much to the front, and the photographs of the inner corona taken by the Astronomer Royal are thought to have been probably the best that have yet been done. Amongst the miscellaneous observations made, it may be mentioned that more stars were seen during the second partial phases than during totality a circumstance which had been noted by Don A. Ulloa as far back as 1778. It is stated also that a mysterious object was seen between Mars and Venus by two officers of the HMS Melpomene, which was not put down on the published chart as a star to be looked for. The identity of this object has not been ascertained. End of chapter 13. Recording by Philip Gould.